Recently, I was substituting at a Christian high school, and I asked the students when I walked in about three questions. I basically said, look, we can talk about any one of these three or all three if you'd like. The first question talked about happiness. What are we supposed to do with our happiness? The next one talked about trials in our life. What are we supposed to do with our trials? How are we supposed to handle those? And the third one was about frustration growing into anger and how we're supposed to handle that. And I said, let's vote. We'll just democracy here, uh, and we'll take the one that is most popular. I assumed that we were going to be talking about happiness. I mean, who doesn't want to be happy, right? Trials, probably second. Not everybody wants to talk about the difficulties of life. And certainly third, maybe way down the list, was the idea of anger and frustration or frustration growing into anger. And to my surprise, unanimously, every class that I taught wanted to talk about frustration growing into anger, which really surprised me. But nevertheless, we talked about that. So tonight, we're actually going to have a sermon on this particular message or on this particular topic. So look at me, look with me uh, at chapter four. We're going to read four verses, but we're only going to really focus on the first two. Verse one, chapter four of Jonah. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? There are two words in the first verse that are Hebrew words. One is raha, which essentially means displeased as it's translated in the ESV, or it could be frustration, which I will be using throughout the sermon. But it's not just a frustration like I'm frustrated that I have a hangnail, or I'm frustrated because I have to go get gas in the car again, or I'm frustrated at the high prices at Costco. It's frustrated, the frustration that Jonah is feeling is uh, connected to an injustice. So the reason Jonah gets frustrated is because he recognizes an injustice happening and it grows into a seething anger, which is the second word, which is hara in Hebrew, which means anger, of course, but it's like essentially throwing a piece of wood in the fireplace. It catches fire, and before you know it, it turns into a blaze. So this is kind of like a seething anger. This is essentially like if you were to come face to face with a bull, a raging bull. It sees the red, and it starts charging you. It's spitting things from its mouth. It's frustrated. It's angry. It wants to rip you apart. This is how Jonah felt. The frustration was from an injustice, the injustice he could not fathom, and it grew into a seething anger. These are the two words that Old Testament believers often described when they were talking about that injustice. So a couple of examples. A couple of years ago when we moved to Washington, when we moved to Michigan, from Washington, we went to church on a Sunday. And after church, we got on the freeway going home. And as you well know, driving in Michigan can be quite adventurous. Well, I'm from California originally, so driving in California was quite adventurous as well. Uh, we got on the freeway and about three quarters of a mile up on the left was a big flashing yellow arrow pointing everybody into the right lane. 
Well, we being from California, hopped on the freeway, got into the left lane, but everybody, all the Michiganders were getting in the right lane. But there was a line of cars about three quarters of a mile long, everybody waiting, and the lane on the left is totally open. Well, me being from California, our rules in California are entirely different than your rules in Michigan. Our rules in California are you drive up almost till you hit the sign with the yellow arrow and then cut somebody off and get over really quick. You in Michigan, everybody gets over and you sit in line for like 15 minutes while the lane in the left is totally open and we're like, this is awesome. Let's just go. Well, the line in the left saw the injustice of what I was doing. I started cruising up, the frustration started growing, hands with vis out the window, 100 yards further, hands with other things out the window. And before you know it, people are now trying to cut you off and run you into the median. And my wife and I and the kids are all like, what's going on with these people? Why aren't we just driving in the lane that's open? Clearly, the Michiganders saw a horrendous injustice happening and the anger grew and grew and grew. Recently, we, of course, had a political debate, and on both sides of the aisle, you had people raging with injustice, pointing fingers at the other side of the aisle, saying, this is an injustice, and rage and anger grew to a level that we may not have seen for a long time politically. Families, when we're in our family time, when we're in devotions, we often talk to our sons about besetting sins, meaning a besetting sin essentially is something that you can't seem to get rid of, maybe Paul's idea of a thorn in the flesh. He can't get rid of it. And we talked to our boys about the damaging effects of this. So this would be a very long-term understanding of these two Hebrew words, whereas you have a besetting sin and it's bothering people in the family and we're asking that family member to please stop doing what they're doing. Please repent of your sin. Please churn from that sin. But, and what happens over time is the family gets more frustrated and more frustrated about the injustice that's happening because you're asking this person to stop and they're not. And before you know it, we've got a big problem 10 years down the road and there's a lot of anger and a lot of, lots of frustration and people are seething about this behavior because this person won't churn from it. Well, in our text tonight, we find these two words. We find raha, meaning frustration, and we find hara, which means anger. So in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah hears the word of God. He sa it says, go to Nineveh and preach repentance to Nineveh. Jonah, of course, runs. He runs into a spiritual decline that lasts throughout the first chapter. But Jonah doesn't just run. Jonah's supposed to go 500 miles away from his house, okay? Jonah runs 3,500 miles in the opposite direction. So I looked up on Google Maps, how far exactly, what is 3,500 miles from here? It's 3,900 miles to Hawaii. How long does it take us to get to Hawaii with modern-day transportation? We get there pretty fast, but it's still a pretty long day, right? It took Jonah a year to get to his destination. The question, of course, is why on earth would a prophet of God run for one year 3,500 miles, why would he do that? The question, the point, or the answer to that is, is that Jonah saw an injustice. But what's the injustice? The Ninevites are the injustice. God's character is the injustice. Because the Ninevites were a part of the Assyrian Empire, and they were conquering Israel at that particular time. They were killing people, 
And a lot of people, some conjecture here, but probably pretty, pretty reasonable to suggest that the Ninevites were slaughtering second and third cousins of Jonah. So this would be something like you being asked to go preach repentance to ISIS after they just slaughtered your brother or daughter or brother or sister in the war. It would be very difficult to do. Jonah goes 3,500 miles in the opposite direction. We find in chapter 2 his frustration over the injustice grows and he finds himself in horrendous despair. Jonah chapter 4, just after our first two verses, we find Jonah's relationship because of this frustration over the injustice that he sees with God. We see it poisoning Jonah's relationship with God. But what does he do at the beginning of the chapter is so interesting. Jonah's one of those guys that we always kick down, isn't he? He's the disobedient Christian. We're going to point to Jonah and we're going to throw him under the bus because he's always the guy that's doing something wrong and we can use him as the example of negative and we'll use Paul or Peter or somebody else as the example of real positive. But does he run into spiritual decline like he did in chapter 4 at the beginning of or chapter 1? Does he find himself in despair like he did in chapter 2? Or does he poison his relationship with God like he does in the rest of the book and really throughout the entire book? How did Jonah respond to what he thought was an injustice? How did he respond to that anger that was spewing from him? Well, in his anger, Jonah does not run from God's refuge. He actually makes God his refuge. It's the one positive in the story of Jonah that, we, that I found when I studied this book I thought it was a beautiful thing because there is so much negative about the story of Jonah. I believe Jonah actually wrote this as a testimony of saying how not to do something. We often say that to people. But in his anger, Jonah doesn't run from God's refuge. He makes God his refuge. It says in verse 1, but it displeased or frustrated Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. You don't have to read very far into chapter 1 to find out that Jonah is really upset. He's repulsed. The first verse says, but it displeased. The it here isn't so much that the Ninevites came to salvation. So if you know the story, Jonah just got done preaching. The story is essentially two stories back to back. The first part, God comes to Jonah. Jonah runs. Verse chapter 3, Jonah comes back to God. Or I'm sorry, the whale spits Jonah out onto the shore. God comes to Jonah again. He says, please go to Nineveh. Are you going to listen this time? He listens and goes. 120,000 people come to faith. Many people say that's around 500 to 750,000 total people that came to salvation the, day that, or the days that Jonah preached. That's an incredible, incredible thing to watch, wouldn't it be? So the it here is not so much that Jonah was displeased with the people coming to faith. His displeasure, his frustration, the injustice that Jonah saw was that God's character saved 750,000 murderers. That was the injustice. It was God's character that was the injustice. Jonah's anger, angry that God would extend the compassion, mercy, grace, and love you're finding in in verse 2 to the Ninevites. He wanted them to endure the fury that Sodom and Gomorrah got. That's what he believed Nineveh should have received for their action. 
and he was seething in this anger. But Jonah clearly has a problem with hypocrisy in this particular book. It's evident that Jonah is happy to receive God's compassion, mercy, grace, love, but heaven forbid this is extended beyond God's people. Jonah saw what God did for the Ninevites, and he was, frustrat- he was frustrated over the injustice, and he spewed with anger. And Jonah hoped that they would be destroyed. The Israelites, as many of you know, were conquered at that particular time by the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, and each and every time God delivered his people. Their natural tendency as a, as a believer, as an Israelite, would have, would have been that God is obviously with us. He is not with our oppressors. He must be for us. He's not for them. Jonah was frustrated that God would spare the Ninevites, the very enemy of God's people. However, Jonah forgets that same compassion, that same mercy was extended to him in verse, chapters 1, 2, and 3. One man wrote this, that it, was, it is always easier to assume God is with us more than he is with our enemies. In war, how can God be on the side of the foe? This is clearly expressed in verse 2 when Jonah says own country or when the text says own country. Jonah knew people in his own country would have much rather endured the wrath of God than to see the kindness of God be shown to their enemies. Probably the best commentary for this is found in one of Jesus' parables. I'll read it for you. It's, you'll, you'll know it well, I'm assuming. The prodigal son, the youngest son, of course, takes the inheritance early before his father dies. He goes off to various places and squanders the inheritance. And as a result, he became destitute to the point where he coveted the slop of pigs. He comes to his senses, of course. He returns home to a father who embraces him and kisses him, it says in Luke 15, 20. The father places the best robe, a ring, shoes, sacrifices the fattened calf, and celebrates what was, what was lost is now is found. The party that subsequently is thrown for the son as the father claims, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate, it says in verse 24 of chapter 15 of Luke. This is indeed a story of God's love to the lost sinner coming home. However, the story does not end there, does it? There's another character in the story, and the context brings in the brother of the prodigal son. The brother is frustrated. What's he frustrated about? He's frustrated about the injustice of what just took place. The injustice of his younger son squandering half the inheritance. What does that mean for the older brother? Does that mean I only get now a quarter of the inheritance because younger brother decided to squander half of it? Among other questions he probably had. So frustrated that he spews with anger. The brother saw nothing, or he saw something that was evil clearly. The brother grew in his frustrations. Undoubtedly, his nostrils were flaring. The brother resents the grace that has been given to the younger brother. The parable expresses this anger. Let me read it for you. Verses, uh, if you want to turn there, Luke 15. 
verse 25 to 32. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was devoured, excuse me, who, was devoured your, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jonah and the prodigal's uh, older brother missed the beautiful truth of God's grace to undeserving sinners. They would rather see the sinner judged and condemned than extend compassion and mercy to the lost sinner. If we want to understand the heart of God, one man writes, we have to grasp this rejoicing for redemption. There is no glory in heaven or on earth to compare with the glory of the forgiveness of sins. So even though Jonah stumbles and will continue for the rest of the book to do so, there is one important element of his salvation being presented here. We know it as sanctification or the growth in your grace or the growth in your holiness, the growth in your conduct. The process of grace can be seen in Jonah here, and that's why there's a positive element in Jonah, and the whole book isn't negative. There's actually a part of this sanctification. His heart and his conduct are being made holy so that he doesn't run from God's refuge, but he makes God his refuge in chapter 1 of verse 4. But we know this process. Many of us know this process. We know that it doesn't just happen the moment we believe by faith. It is a process. I do believe that's part of what Jonah was trying to convey to us. But what does Jonah do the first time? Turn back to Jonah, if you're not there already. Jonah does this the first time. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1, came to to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's frustration quickly grew to anger, as we've talked about. So much anger poured from him that he went 3,500 miles in the opposite direction. But even though Jonah was frustrated with this injustice, that he believed was a total injustice, how does he respond? Jonah takes refuge in God in in verse 1, or I'm sorry, verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord, it says in the first part of verse 2 of chapter 4. The first part of this verse describes a drastic change upon the man that we saw back in chapter 1. He doesn't run, he doesn't take off, he, doesn't, he stops and he makes God his refuge. Jonah was running to Tarshish, clearly frustrated, but the word of God came to him once again. He received the word of God, went, watched 750,000 people come to faith, and now in chapter 1, when he is still angry to the point of seething, he stops and makes God his refuge in the midst of his anger. 
God has accomplished his sovereign will. Jonah watched all these people come to faith. And he's still angry, but don't miss how he responds. His response is that Jonah doesn't run from God's refuge. He makes God his refuge. Clearly, the rest of chapter 4 is going to convey a different message. Jonah does exactly what Jonah's not supposed to do. This refuge that Jonah was built on, the refuge that Jonah found and the refuge that Jonah stopped running from and he made God his refuge is built on God's character, it says in verse 2. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. While Jonah takes exception to God's character in verse 1, he now relies on that character for his refuge. He prays to God knowing that God will hear his prayer. The part that Jonah is going to miss, of course, is that God's character, the mercy, the, mercy, the being slow to anger, the abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster is for all of God's children. It is for all those that God brings to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Not just the Israelites, not just us, not just who we think God should bring, and not anyone else but exactly who God has chosen to save in Christ's blood. Let us not miss this important truth at the beginning of Jonah. Jonah shows us this important truth about God's grace. Jonah is a changed man by the grace of God. Even it may be for a moment, he is still changed by the grace of God. He goes from a frustrated man with what he perceived to be an injustice to an angry man that runs from God's refuge to a man that makes God his refuge. So how should we respond? How should we respond when we get frustrated with an injustice? That we perceive when something is totally and truly wrong. How should we respond when some evil action propels us into anger? How should we respond when our frustration over an injustice grows into a seething anger? In times of anger, we should not run from God's refuge. We must make God our refuge. How not to do this, I discovered just the other day. I was sitting with a friend talking about our children and the behavior between our two children, and that could have gone sideways, and one of us could have interpreted that as an injustice. How dare you say something about my child? He's perfect. And the other guy could have said, how dare you say something about my child? He's perfect. And then we got a big problem. But we both came to, the, we both came to resolve. We both recognized that we make mistakes as parents. Our children make mistakes as children. We talked through it, and it was over in five minutes. Not 30 seconds after that, one of our other neighbors, a Christian, walked up to my neighbor and said to him, why don't you clean the weeds out of the creek? We live on a lake, and it's got a little creek nearby, and with the big storm recently, it, it, it washed a bunch of stuff down into the creek, and it, and it was kind of just clogging up the creek. And he said, why didn't you? And I thought he was kidding. I mean, I legitimately thought he was kidding when he asked the question. And he said, your kids were in the creek cleaning out your side, but you didn't have any courtesy to come to my side and clean it out. And I thought, oh dear, this is not good. Because I, at that point, obviously realized he's dead serious about what he's saying. He goes on. Why didn't you get it out? I'm 74 years old. Why didn't you get in there and get it? I look at my neighbor thinking, oh dear, we're going to have a fight. Like, I'm going to be like holding these guys apart from one another. 
And he is getting, he's holding, his, he's holding his calm, he's doing a good job, but this guy just kept going and going and talking about the weeds in the creek that made no difference to anything, but he was upset about it. And his frustration grew to a point where he believed it was an injustice and he was taking his wrath out on my other neighbor and my other neighbor started to get mad. And then my other neighbor said to him, I'll show you where those weeds were. And he walks down to the creek, points, here were the weeds, let's look where your property line is. Right here, they're on your side of the property line. And I'm sitting there like this. I mean, it's like, you know, two five-year-olds arguing over the hot dog at the table or something. My one neighbor sat there, and I could, all I could think about was this, this message. This is a total injustice being thrust on this man for doing nothing. Nothing. And he tried to defend himself in the sense to say, look, I'll have my kids do it next time for you. I'll have them clean it up for you. I'll have them crawl in the creek and get it out for you next time. And this guy then throws out, and your kids don't even look at me when they walk by the house. They must be really mad at me. Isn't it Christian behavior for a Christian neighbor to say hello and, say, and wave and look at me when I'm there and at least acknowledge my existence? And I thought, oh dear, this is going to keep going. And my other neighbor was fuming at the point of a total injustice thrust upon him that I witnessed, and he held it together. But the question was, what was he going to do with that seething anger? Was he going to do what many of us do and go home, talk to his wife or talk to the kids and talk about what a terrible guy this neighbor is and how awful he was? Look what he did. He yelled at me. He told me my kids don't like him and on and on. And it just consumes us. And we are seething with anger, and all we are is consuming these, these problems that we have? Or was he going to make God his refuge? A more positive example. A number of years ago, um, I came home from England, and my father, was past, my father was dying, and I got there the day before he died. Uh, my parents were not Christian. I was not raised in a Christian home, uh, and my father was extremely verbally abusive to us. Uh, and so over time, kind of like my family illustration at the very beginning, over time, it just became a very seething anger. As, parent, as kids, we thought there was an injustice, of course, and we were upset. And over time, our relationship became very, uh, very divided and difficult. But he was dying. My father died when he was 78, and my father got saved when he was 76. Now, that was an astonishing experience when I had that conversation with him because he said actually the words, I'm a believer, and I almost fell off the couch when he said the words, I'm a believer, because I couldn't believe that he was a believer, but like Jonah, my hypocrisy was there because, look, I was just as heathen as he was. I just did it differently. And so my father ends up passing away, and I remember staring at, he was in hospice, and I remember staring at him thinking, I am so grateful to God that God loved him. That God loved him enough to save him because this man burned every bridge that he ever had and nobody else would have saved him except for the mercy and the love of God through Jesus Christ. And I remember sitting there thinking, I am so thankful to God. And then when I walked out later on, I thought, why was I so okay with all of this? Why wasn't I still mad at him? And I just praised God in that sense. And so I don't want to give myself credit in that sense. I really feel like God just gave me the grace to take refuge in him at a time where I could have claimed total injustice. 40, 40 years of my life, this man made my life what felt miserable to me. I could have claimed injustice. Most people probably would have agreed with me. 
But God gave me the sanctification, and I grew at that moment. Now, I could, look, I could give you 10 other examples of how I've messed this up with my kids and my wife and done the very thing that Jonah's doing. But at that moment with my father, I actually did a pretty good job by God's grace. There are certainly other times where certain things have gotten under my skin, where, like, for example, your kids are ridiculed by others. It's very difficult to listen to your kids be ridiculed by other people about what they've done. Now, at that moment, it's unjust. It's, it's, it's an injustice, an injustice to do such things. What am I going to do? What is my neighbor going to do? Are we going to take refuge in God, or are we going to take refuge in the many things that we shouldn't take in? So God is our refuge when we stop running and make him our refuge. We can do this first like Jonah, and we can stop and pray and look to God's word. Think about how that experience with my neighbors would have happened if they both would have just stopped for a moment and said, let's pray together over this and make sure that this doesn't go sideways. It probably wouldn't have. We need to recognize that, our, that we are frustrated over an injustice. Maybe we're right. Maybe we're actually recognizing an injustice like Jonah saw in the Ninevites. Maybe we're wrong, like Jonah as well, to condemn God for what God, excuse me, for what God has done. When that frustration grows into a seething anger that we may even call righteous anger, we need to stop and make God our refuge through prayer and His Word. But the question is for you, brothers and sisters, and for me, is whether we're actually going to do it. As I say to my kids often in our devotions, we got the theory, the theory we got, now can we love our neighbors as ourselves? Difficult to do. When we run from God's refuge, as I've mentioned, we make complaining our refuge. When we run from God's refuge, we make self-centeredness our refuge. When we run from God's refuge, we make hypocrisy our refuge. This all leads to a spiritual decline like we find in Jonah 1. It all leads to a despair that we find in Jonah chapter 2. And it ultimately will lead to poisoning our relationship with God as we find in chapter 4. We can't run from God's refuge, brothers and sisters. We must make God our refuge. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we come to you, the God of mercy and grace and compassion, and we give you praise. We give you praise and glory for being that God, that we worship a God who is above all things, who loves all things, who, Lord, is also just. But, God, you balance the grace with truth, and we give you praise for those many things. We ask you, God, tonight to forgive our many sins. We give you thanks for this message from Jonah. We give you thanks for this truth, God, that we can make you our refuge in times of injustice. So many of us, God, Go to work on a daily basis where we are dealing with one injustice after another. And God, you are calling us to make you our refuge. May we pray. May we use your word, God. May you empower us through your spirit to do so. May you give us the recognition, the discernment, God, so that we know when to stop. And we recognize, God, that we are not making you our refuge, but we are actually complaining or arguing or who knows what else, Lord? May you give us the power through the presence of your spirit to make you our refuge the next time we come into a frustration that grows and grows into anger. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. We're going to sing one more hymn.
God is our refuge and our strength from Psalm 46. Would you please rise and sing with me? following the benediction. Now receive the benediction of our, of our Lord. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope.